0: We are in Luke chapter 9 this morning. We'll be in verses 23 through 27. Thank you, Rusty, for reading that for us. I'd like to begin with a question. Is man deprived or depraved? Is man deprived or is man depraved? There's only a one-letter differentiation between those two words, but the implications are huge. If the fundamental problem of people or mankind is that we are deprived, then that determines how we think about Christ. It determines how we think about salvation. If I am primarily deprived, then my salvation, so to speak, is found in finding ways for me to meet my physical and emotional needs. More recently... Pop psychology and the prevailing view of this culture goes even further than that, in that you must find ways to fulfill your very desires if you are going to achieve complete fulfillment in this life. Don't let anyone deprive you of your emotional needs, your physical needs, or even your desires. However, if I am primarily depraved, then my salvation lies outside of myself. Fulfilling my own desires is not my salvation, but is my damnation. I don't need to be me. I need to follow Christ. So as man deprived or depraved, how we answer that question for ourselves determines our life on this earth, and more importantly, our status in eternity to come. So we're coming off a passage. We tried to, last week, to capture the shock that the disciples and and the hearers would have understood as they hear Jesus follow up Peter's confession that you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the one who has come to save, and Jesus follows that up with, I must be rejected, I must suffer, I must die, and then be raised. So we saw then that Jesus is a different sort of Savior, a different sort of Messiah than was anticipated. Even the disciples didn't fully understand till after the resurrection, all that Jesus was proclaiming to be true about Himself. And so our text, we really could have taken this as a larger unit, our text flows from the text that we looked at last week. If the Messiah must be rejected and suffer and die, and live again, then it follows that his disciples will be rejected and suffer and need to deny themselves, dying to the course of this world, but they gain eternal life. I think we can summarize it this way, it's the what and why of following Christ. That's our first point this morning, it's going to take up the bulk of our passage, verses 23 through 26. and of the holy angels. So it says, now Jesus turns and addresses all. Luke does not formally reintroduce the crowd to us in his narrative, but it would be consistent with Mark and, and Matthew to understand that th- there's now a larger audience than just the disciples. In our previous text, he's talking to the disciples. He's, he's alone. Now he turns to all, which again, the other gospel writers indicate that that's In addition to the disciples, the crowd. And his instruction to them is centered on the requirements of coming after Christ. If anyone would come after me. In the Old Testament, Israel is guilty over and over again for following after false gods, they have turned their back on Yahweh and worshiped idols. And that's the context in which Elijah in 1 Kings 18 says, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. Follow God if He is God. And now you have Christ standing before the crowd saying, If anyone desires to come and follow me, let him come after Me, God in the flesh, has come and He beckons the crowd to follow them. For the disciples, this, this meant to literally follow and to travel with Jesus. But it's more than that. It's that they have chosen to follow Him because although their understanding is not complete at this point, they understand at some level that Jesus is their Lord, that Jesus is their Master, so if we wanted to bring a little bit of the tone of Elijah into the message this morning, it might sound like this. If Jesus is Lord, follow Him. If Jesus is Lord, follow Him. If He, if he isn't, what are we doing? What are we doing here? I think the Cowboys play this this afternoon. We could be getting ready for that. But the absolute worst, the most inappropriate response is to sort of, kind of think you should give a little bit of yourself to Christ. If Jesus is Lord, follow him. If he's not, we've wasted our time this morning. Jesus' message, what it means to come after him, what it means to be a follower of him, must have sounded bonkers to those in Israel who were convinced that Jesus had come to overthrow the political tyranny of Rome. If you remember when he fed the 5,000, a lot of people thought this is the beginning of sort of overthrowing this tyranny. Let's go make Jesus a king. John makes it really explicit in his gospel. So it must have sounded really odd for him then to say, now, not only do I have to suffer and be rejected and die, but I need you to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and come and follow me and bear this reproach with me. It sounds even more wild, it sounds even more odd in our culture of self-fulfillment, of self-esteem, of self-gratification, that Jesus would say, deny yourself. Deny yourself. And that's his first command there. If anyone is to, to come after me, let him deny himself. Now this is not some call, some call to what we might refer to as asceticism. Asceticism is thinking that you can somehow bring your body under submission by abusing it. Sometimes it was practiced literally Abusing your body, punishing your body, seeking to bring it under control. It's a self-willed view of how I might actually earn my own righteousness before God. Paul said the problem with asceticism, and he's talking about legalism there in Colossians 2, the problem is it looks like wisdom, but it's completely useless in putting to death the deeds of the body. So this isn't just denial for denial's sake. It's not simply saying no to certain pleasures either. Everyone, to some extent, practices some kind of self-denial. Maybe it's denying yourself that extra dessert after dinner so you don't add a few pounds. Maybe it's forgoing driving as fast as you would like because you don't want to get arrested. So we all deny certain things at certain times for certain reasons. What Christ is calling his disciples to is a total relinquishing of themselves, their purposes for themselves, their plans for themselves, and a giving over of that to the one who has created us. It is to renounce my own sovereignty over myself, my own ability to direct myself to my own ends, It is the assertion that I cannot and I will not direct my own life. So we might say that that this isn't like an addition to Jesus' call to repent and to believe. This is a really vivid illustration of what repentance and belief looks like. It's to deny yourself. To deny that I can in any way, in any form, in myself, save myself. It's akin to being poor in the Spirit, from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It is to say with Job, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. It is to say with Isaiah, woe is me, for I am undone. I must turn away from my natural, depraved, sinful self, and I must turn to the one who has dealt decisively with my depravity, on the cross. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7 say it this way. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God that he may, or for he will abundantly pardon. If you are Here this morning, and you are not a Christian, God is calling you to turn from from this self-interest, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, to deny yourself and to turn from that and to trust in the work of Christ, in which he died on a cross to accomplish your salvation. Isaiah 55 says he will have compassion on you. He will abundantly pardon you if you turn from yourself and turn to Christ. Deny yourself. Take up your cross, Jesus says. Now, we have sort of trivialized this terminology of bearing your own cross. It's become part of our our jargon, and so we've sort of minimalized it a little bit. You go through the drive-thru at Wendy's, and they put mayonnaise on your spicy chicken sandwich, and everybody hates mayonnaise. And so what do you say? This is just my cross to bear. (laughs) Well, bearing your cross, though it's kind of come into common terminology that way, it's not some kind of reference to our first world problem. It's a gruesome image that in this context would conjure up images of criminals being put to death. Not only that, but prior to be put to death, they would take the cross, at least the cross bar, on themselves and haul it to the cross where they would be put to death. This was Rome's way of announcing to the watching world that this person is in complete and utter submission to the state. They're not only going to die, they're carrying their own device to the place where they're going to die. So we might say to bear your cross is to be so submitted then to the authority of God that you view your independent, self-indulgent life as already put away. It's past. I'm committing to view myself this way daily, the text says. And in light of Jesus' reference earlier to his suffering and his rejection, we should also see in this cross imagery that Jesus is calling his followers to be willing to identify with Christ even if it leads them to the suffering that comes from the rejection of the world. Be willing to bear up under the hatred, the scorn, the rejection of this world for the sake of Christ. And so the question for us this morning is, are you prepared to suffer the rejection of the world in order to remain faithful to the Lord? Are you willing to suffer the rejection, the shame, the reproach, the scorn of this world in order to remain faithful to the Lord? You know, we, we bought this lie for a season, you know, that if I could just be nice enough, then the world will accept me. But the culture is changing radically and quickly. And so it doesn't matter how nice we are, you may very well be called evil for simply holding to what the Bible teaches. You will bear the scorn of this world. And in following the example of Jesus, and this is what Peter says, Jesus is more than an example, he's not less than an example, but Peter says he's, he's an example. So in following the example of Jesus, we're called not then to sin against those, to bear our cross is to not sin against those who persecute us. It's to hold our tongue in light of attacks that come at us. It's to choose winsome and gracious words instead of reviling and threatening people. And it's to entrust ourselves to God. It's to entrust ourselves to Him. Which probably looks like not seeking our own revenge. So when when, when I throw that out there, are are you prepared? Am I prepared? I'm not asking if we're scared or not. The issue isn't one of fear. I'm asking, are you you and I willing to entrust ourselves to God? Are we willing to entrust ourselves to Him so that we don't threaten and attack and seek our own revenge, but we accept God's good will for us, even if it involves persecution and suffering? We deny ourselves, we take up our cross daily, and we follow Christ. This is to submit to Christ as Lord. It is to obey Christ. See, following Christ actually emerges from these first two. When you, you deny yourself and you take up your cross daily, that's what it is to follow Christ. The original act then of, of repentance and turning to Him and being willing to, to see yourself, yourself, your past indulgent self, as put to death, it becomes a way of life becomes a way of living underneath the lordship of Christ. Now I belong to him. He directs my life. Self-denial becomes simply what we do in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are to be characterized by a continual then repentance and turning to the Lord. This is the mark of a disciple. That's why Jesus said earlier, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I say? Paul says it this way in Titus 2 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Jesus has come and he's brought salvation with him, he has brought salvation in his work on the cross. And we are not only invited to partake of his gracious work in our justification, but we are trained, in Titus 2, to live a godly life, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So I'd encourage all of us together as a church to do the work of repentance. Really, I want to press into to do the work of specific Repentance. Sometimes I think we're, we're, we're too vague in the way that we confess sin to the Lord and others. Forgive me for being rude is less helpful than forgive me, Lord, because I've worshipped comfort. And when that comfort was compromised, I sinned against my spouse or I sinned against my brother in Christ. We might try to discern, even with the help of others, not just the outward manifestation of our sin, but the inward passion that, that drove us to that sin. What is the passion that needs to be put to death? I like the way Craig Troxell says it in his book, With, with All Your Heart. God created us to desire. It is when we twist our, it is when we twist our desires or they turn inappropriate... Okay, I, I wrote this down wrong. Let me see what it, it is. when we twist desires toward inappropriate ends or disproportionate levels that things go wrong. There we go. Our desires have gone astray, he says, when they are out of bounds or out of proportion. So we can seek to discern in our heart when we go to repent before the Lord for the outward manifest, manifestation of our sins... How was this either disproportionate, this desire, it went too far, or it was out of bounds. It was a desire for something that God forbids in his word. So we deny ourselves, we take up our cross, and we follow Christ. And then in the rest of this this first point here, we see the why of following Jesus. It's given in the next three verses. Look down in your text there. If you don't have a Bible handy, there's that. Pew Bible in front of you, it might be helpful. In verse 24, 4, verse 25, 4, verse 26, 4. So Jesus goes on to give us the motivation for why we ought to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ. Verse 24, 4, we might say it this way, you gain eternal life by turning over, by giving up your earthly life. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I read one definition of a paradox this week. They defined it this way, and I know that word can mean different things. But a paradox is defined as a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. It's something that seems self-contradictory. It seems absurd. But upon further investigation, we find that it's actually true. And I think that's a good definition of Jesus' statement in verse 24. At first, it seems self-contradictory. What do you mean, Jesus? I gained my life by losing it. Well, we need to, under, we need to investigate this to understand where Jesus is going. If we think about what Jesus has just said... About denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following Him, it helps us to understand what He would mean then by if someone saves their life. To save your life is to not deny yourself. It's not not take up your cross. It is to dig in your heels and say no to Christ, to refuse to give to Him what He deserves in total commitment. The one who seeks to save his life will lose it. The theme song of this person is Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. I'm going to live life my way. The very end of that song says, For what is a man, if not in himself, then he is not, not to say the things he truly feels, and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows, I did it my way. To, be, to seek to save your life, to, keep, to seek to cling to this life, is to do life your way on your terms for your glory. Those who do it their way, those who seek to refuse identification with Christ, those who seek to cling to the comforts and pleasures of this world, are kept from coming to Christ. And they lose their life this talk of loss and save. These are judgment-type words. And we'll see that Jesus is building towards this judgment. It's looking forward to the time where we stand before Christ. So we would say, if you cling to this life, you lose eternal life. If you cling to this life, you lose eternal life. It's a shame to insist on living life my way, on my terms, for my God's glory. And to stand before Christ at the end and to hear Him say, Depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. But for those who give up this life, those who don't cling to the comforts and the pleasures of this world, those who turn to Christ, they insist on living God's way and God's world for God's glory, they gain eternal life. They gain eternal life. He's called to, to deny yourself, and to take up your cross and to follow Christ, that's, that's unnerving, that's a bracing call from Jesus. But the reward is worth it. In Matthew, it's like finding a, a pearl in a field that's of infinite value. And you look out on the field, you see there, there's a for sale sign here. You wouldn't then go home and say, I don't know, property in the Black Hills is pretty steep right now. You would sell everything you have. You would sell everything you have to buy that field so that you can have the pearl. The temporary loss of selling everything you have is nothing compared to the reward of of gaining that great pearl for what you stand to gain. You gain eternal life. This is also consistent with Jesus' claim about himself in the previous paragraph. Jesus said he will suffer, he will be rejected, he will die, but then he lives again. Then he lives again. This serves as a pattern for our Christian discipleship, a pattern for our following Christ, our self-denial, our cross-bearing, our giving up our lives in pursuit of Jesus precedes the glory of eternal life. In the same way, the suffering that Christ experiences precedes the glory of his resurrection. Look there in verse 25. You see the word for again. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? We might say for it is senseless to gain the world and lose your soul. It's senseless to gain your world and lose your soul. It's a bad trade. I don't know if you've made a bad trade. If you have an older brother, certainly you have. Older siblings are notorious for talking their younger siblings into things that make absolutely no sense except to a younger brother. I'm still traumatized by my older brother. He told me that he was in a secret ninja club and that if I did these errands for him, he would let me into the ninja club. And I'm still waiting for my acceptance. But you know what's, what's dumber than a ninja club What's dumber than a big brother tricking his little brother into doing all his chores is trading eternal life for temporary indulgence. Trading eternal life for temporary indulgence. Jesus doesn't say, you know, the things you have won't be enough for you. He says, even if you had everything you ever thought you wanted, even if you had the whole world, it's a a dumb trade. If you had a genie that, that wasn't even limited to three wishes, you had, you had infinite wishes, your desires instantly gained. The lusts of your heart given to you at the snap of a finger, everything, Jesus says, it's not worth it to trade that for your soul. So many are, are trapped in this lie That they're believing, you know what, the problem isn't that the world doesn't satisfy. The problem is that I don't have enough of it. So I've got to go get more, and I've got to go get more, and I've got to go get more. So they dedicate themselves to pursuing greater pleasures and greater accumulation of material needs, stacking numbers in the bank account. In the meantime, they're neglecting the most fundamental thing about themselves, their soul. They need Christ. You see, Jesus will tell the crowd in Luke chapter 12 that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. There's a rich fool in Luke 12 who says to himself, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, This night, your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, all the world that you've gained, whose will they be? In a second, all that he had labored to gain is taken from him, and he was rich in terms of this world, but he was not rich towards God. And so the only prospect he has facing him is judgment. He gained the world, but he lost his soul. He built his house on the sand, and when the flood came, the flood destroyed his house. The consequences to clinging to this world are catastrophic. Look in verse 26. We see the catastrophe for whoever is ashamed of me, in my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. We might say, for the Son of Man will reject those who don't honor him and his word. See, I think Jesus has been building to this. He's been hinting at this final judgment. Here he makes it explicit. He again refers to himself as the son of man, which points to his authority and the role that he has as judge of all the earth. And he will be ashamed of those who are ashamed of him. To be ashamed of Jesus in this life is to ensure that Jesus is ashamed of you in the next. And please don't hear that and think, this is Jesus as some sort of just disappointed dad. I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. Jesus isn't shaking his head here. This is eternal rejection. This is eternal rejection. And what incurs this penalty? Being ashamed of Christ being ashamed of Jesus and His words. In this context, it is to reject Christ. It is to reject His call. It is to reject His word to you. And for all all those who reject Christ, there remains the judgment described in Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who was seated on it This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Don't be ashamed of Christ. Don't reject his word. Don't reject his message. Don't flee from him. Flee to him. He is the refuge. The one who has given judgment over the world is the very one who can rescue you from this judgment that is to come. He is the only hope. He is the only safety for your soul. And it's clear now that there is no sort of middle ground here. There are those who are ashamed of Christ. There are those who have rejected Him and is called to self-denial. And there are those who have come to Him. There's no sort of, kind of, I I like Jesus. He's my Savior, but not my Lord. That's not in the text. So following Christ is costly, and we've seen this hinted at, but it's worth it. And We see in verse 27 then, the hope of following Christ. But I tell you truly, some are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, There are some in the audience who won't die before they see the kingdom. Now some have understood this to be a reference to the coming death, resurrection, exaltation of Christ, uh, the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost there in Acts 2. And, you know, there are reasons people believe that. Jesus has been proclaiming the kingdom. In chapter 17, he says, "...the kingdom of God is in the midst of you." When Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father, he's given all rule and authority as he reigns from the right hand of the Father. Though we now await the full consummation of the kingdom, many see a fulfillment of this text in Acts 1 and 2. It seems better, though, to conclude that Jesus is referencing what immediately follows here in the transfiguration of Christ. I think it makes better sense of some of you, because some of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, are led up to a mountain and they see the unbridled, unveiled glory of Christ. The resplendent glory that was just mentioned, the coming of the Son of Man in glory, that glory was on display at the transfiguration. This is a preview of the second coming of Christ. It's a foreshadow of the glory of Christ that will be on display when he returns. Now I think some evidence that makes me lean that way. Both Matthew and Mark do the same thing in recording Jesus' call here and Jesus' words that some will see the kingdom of God before they die. And then they all follow it up with this transfiguration narrative. So that's one line of reasoning. Another one, I think Peter actually makes this really helpful for us. In 2 Peter 1, he talks about the transfiguration. And this is what he says. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. So for Peter, over there in Second Peter, the transfiguration, that again we'll look at in greater detail next week, it's a preview of the power and coming of Christ. It's a foreshadow. He saw the glory of Christ associated with his second coming, with his coming in power and glory. He saw the glory of Christ associated with the kingdom of God that will be fully revealed upon his second coming when he will judge the wicked and he will reward the righteous. And this day, this this second coming of Christ, it's, it's what we've talked about. For those who are ashamed of Christ, this is a terrifying day. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God if you're at enmity with God. But for those who have denied themselves, taken up their cross daily, and make it a practice of following Christ, this is our hope. This glory that was on display in the Mount of Transfiguration, this is our hope. We long for the day that Christ returns in power and glory. We long for the day when the kings of the earth, like Psalm 2 says, are brought under total dominion under Christ. Christ. We are filled with anticipation as we think about the glory on display at the second coming of Christ, a glory that was glimpsed by Peter and James and John. So, as we think about Christ's words here, a question I want to have sort of continually before us as a church, continually before me is this, what is the daily narrative of my life? What is the daily narrative of my life? What, what I mean by this, and again, this is, um, I'm going to quote Troxel here for a second, what is the direction of your thinking? What is its track, its trajectory, its agenda, its paradigm, or as one might say, how it's trending? What's trending in your thinking? What what drives the the conversation, the thoughts that are sort of bouncing around in your head? Paul Tripp says, nobody talks to you more than you. So what are you telling yourself is true about this world and, and about Christ? Are the thoughts bouncing around in your head during the course of the day centered around Christ? And the coming glory of Christ? Does self-denial and bearing your cross shape the way you think about your, your day, your week? Does the final judgment change anything about the way you talk or what you read or how you spend your money or what fills up your calendar? You see, this world and, and, and the sinful desires that dwell within our hearts, that they scheme together to draw us away from Christ. They proclaim together that you are not fundamentally depraved and therefore you don't fundamentally need to consider and think on and meditate on Christ. You are fundamentally deprived and that you need to get busy about the business of fulfilling your own desires. So in order to remain faithful to the Lord, we need to both look back at the cross that Jesus has alluded to here. The disciples, they don't know quite yet the full extent of what Jesus means when he says, bear your cross. But for us, we look back at the cross of Christ and see the love of Christ on display and we look forward to the coming of Christ and long for the revelation of his glory in all his creation. So as we wrap up, what has Christianity cost you? Or what have you given up in pursuit of Christ? Now, this isn't a trick question. It's just meant to provoke in us a desire to consider Jesus' words. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. But, you know, it, as, as that question lands on your ears and you think, you know, it's sort of hard for me to come up with an answer, it doesn't necessarily mean that you've been unfaithful. Maybe, maybe. You have found such joy in knowing Christ that the things that you've given up don't feel like such a cost in light of what you've gained. Perhaps, for for some here, perhaps you think like Paul in Philippians 3 who said, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I count it all as loss. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. May you and I, Consider the loss of all things as nothing, nothing compared to the worth of knowing Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would humble us and help us to receive your word in all humility, recognizing our status as mere creation, And as creator, you have chosen to reveal your will to us. You have chosen to reveal your plan of salvation to us. And Lord, we we rejoice in that. Would you be pleased with us in the way that we respond to your word and the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.